Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you for being here as always. Hope your week was good. How was it? Quiet. Yeah, pretty quiet. Not much going on from an Arsenal perspective. And that is something that we're going to have to come to terms with this season because of our lack of European football. Normally, we will be preparing for the kickoff of our European season at this point. But as we all know, that is that is not the case. The only midweek football we've had is an early entry into the EFL, Carabao, Milk, Rumbelows, Coca-Cola Cup. And we've got another game next week against AFC Wimbledon. So that will be a nice welcome distraction. But we're not preparing for Europa League. We're certainly not preparing for Champions League. And it does make the, the midweeks feel a little bit empty. That cycle that we've been become so used to Premier League uh, post-match stuff then you've got pre-game stuff for the midweek game then you've got press conferences and the game and then post-match stuff again and then just a little bit of time for some more pre-match stuff etc it was hectic and now it's it's not that hectic at all perhaps there may be some benefits to that something I might touch on in my conversation a bit later on with my second guest uh, Andrew Allen will be joining us a little bit later on in a couple of moments time I'll be talking to Rory Smith of the New York Times but I did want to touch on something that uh, was occurring on Twitter uh, during the week, and that is, I know these people are out there. I know we don't really want to acknowledge their existence. There's a lot going on in the world right now, I realize, uh, but we're going to have to face up to the reality of, of what we are as a species. And it's difficult to say this, but I'm talking, I'm talking about people... I'm talking about people who listen to podcasts at increased speed. I don't really understand of all the cultural medium or media or whatever it is you want to call it that we have, that this has become accepted practice. Nobody sticks on Netflix or whatever or Apple movies or whatever the hell it is and and watches a movie at two by speed, do they? No, they don't. Nobody listens to music like that. I mean, you used to in the old days where you'd have the old 33s and the 45s. Kids, ask your parents. Well, you wouldn't play a 33 at 45. And if you played a 45 at 33, it just sounded weird and wrong. So why is it with podcasts? Maybe it's because they just want to fit in more podcasts. They're just really super committed to the, to the art form that is the podcast. 
But I have to say that when you spend time working on the production values and the audio quality and then somebody comes along to play it at one and a half or two speed, I don't know. I take that kind of shit personally. Maybe it's just me, but there you go. Still think it's wrong. I mean, what would it sound like? Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you for being here as always. Hope your week was good. How was it? Quiet. Yeah, pretty quiet. Not much going on from an Arsblog perspective. And that is something that we're going to have to... So this next bit is especially for you guys who listen at one and a half or two speed. Welcome back to the real world. Yeah, just listening to that bank, it sounds like I've had about 19 goblets of wine, which isn't the case, I promise you. Look, let's get on with the show. And one of the talking points from last weekend's Premier League football was the injury to Liverpool's Harvey Elliott. And it sparked a lot of discussion about um, some of the challenges that referees are letting go this season, apparently under uh, instruction from the head of the PGMOL, which is the Referees Association. That's Mike Riley, who I'm sure all of you think of tremendously fondly. We saw on Monday night against uh, Everton, Burnley got away with some pretty, pretty sturdy tackles, which ordinarily should at least have been yellow cards. One of them wasn't even a free kick. So with me to talk about that and much more, delighted to welcome back to the show. He's the chief soccer correspondent for the New York Times and one of the hosts of the Excellent Set Pieces podcast. It is Rory Smith. Hi, Rory. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. It's been a while since we talked, so welcome back. Um, I, I want to talk first about something that uh, we, we had a very brief interaction on Twitter with during the week. Uh, Harvey Elliott, Liverpool's young player, was injured at the weekend, and Ken Early from Second Captains wrote a very good piece in the Irish Times and, and spoke about it very well on their uh, free podcast on Monday, if people want to go back and listen to that. And it's it's to do with this sort of edict that has been handed down from on high um, in the Premier League this season to to let it flow, to let the game flow. So it's more, uh, you know, it's flowing football, et cetera, et cetera. And we're not getting all these um, obtrusive interferences from referees. And Jurgen Klopp talked after their game against Burnley that maybe this is going back 10 or 15 years and he expressed some concern that something something bad might happen. He referenced protection of the players. A few weeks later, one of his players is badly injured, is going to be out for a considerable period of the season. Um, is it too early to say that this is a growing trend or that this, what happened to Harvey Elliott is sort of an inevitability based on this this um, dictate from the uh, PGMOL? Well, so it's, it's a really complicate, complicated thing because it, it's obviously not like a direct correlation. So you, there were bad tackles last season. There were bad tackles the season before. There was, you know, Son on Andre Gomez is the one that a lot of people drew a parallel with. Bad tackles happen in football. Players get injured in football. It, it is unfortunately part of it. And there's a limit to what you can do in terms of the laws and the rules to, to minimise that. I think, and I, this is this is drawing largely on Ken's thoughts, which is never a bad position to be in. No. I think I think the difficulty is, and what maybe Klopp's been driving at, is that if you create an environment in 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 which players feel that the referees have been a little bit more permissive, that there is a bit more of a risk that you can take in the physicality, the physical side of the game. If you if you sense that there are rewards for that that type those types of tackles if you feel that you can get away with a bit more mm. you might you might be inclined as a player to push the envelope slightly and i think Klopp's point 
And all, all major managers, Arsenal know this as well as anybody, all major managers are inherently divisive figures. And there will be a lot of people who, when Klopp says something, will be inclined to disagree because he is Jurgen Klopp and he's manager of Liverpool. Mm. And that was true of Wenger, it's true of Mourinho, it's true of... It will eventually, once the sort of romance dies down, be true of Tuchel, it was true of Pochettino. When big managers speak, we tend to assume they're saying something because they think they can get an advantage out of it. I don't really think that's true. I think when Klopp complained after Burnley, which was a game that Liverpool won, I think he was genuinely referring to two or three challenges, from, particularly from Ashley Barnes, that he felt would be on the pale. And when lots and lots of teams play Burnley, their managers think that there are things that Burnley do that are physical and tough and aggressive and fine. Mm. And that there are some things that Burnley do that are physical and tough and aggressive. And actually, do you know what? Not fine. And it was very much that that Klopp was, was driving at. The, the, the Elliott one is tricky because that tackle can happen in whatever circumstance. But I, I do wonder whether, because there has now, there's now this sort of sense around games that referees have been told, you know, don't be so pernickety, don't interfere every two minutes, that players are thinking, well, do you know what, maybe I can go on going a little bit harder. Maybe that tackle that I wouldn't have made last season is more likely to, to, to go unpunished. Mm. And, it, and I think Klopp's point is basically all you're doing is you're, you're shifting the balance a little bit. You're, 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 waiting, you're putting your thumb on the scale slightly and saying that you're willing to accept a little bit more risk in order to have more fluid football. And I, I, I can't remember who made this point. It definitely wasn't me. I'm not, it feels a little bit like they've come up with a solution to a problem that wasn't really bothering anybody. I don't remember last season there being a big thing about our oh, referees are interfering too much. I remember mm. there being a massive thing about toenail offsides and ridiculous handballs and VAR making, VAR retro-reversing decisions, retro, re, sorry, retro-refereeing decisions yeah. because it wanted to be 100% accurate. Let it flow is not... It feels like it's been designed as a response to that problem despite not really being anything to do with that problem. The, that problem is solved by not using VAR the whole time in, and saying we're, we're just going to accept that the, the, on, the on-pitch referee can interpret most decisions themselves. You don't need to kind of create an edict saying, you know, we, we want a bit more physicality. I, I don't really think we do want a bit more physicality. I think we quite like football where the players are protected and free to express themselves because the longer-term danger, I guess, is if you have a more physical game, then players, this is something Ken touched on as well, players have to start protecting themselves and thinking about other things. So you, st- you stop seeing that movement. You see all the time now where a player will happily run round an opponent who stood right next to them because they know the opponent isn't allowed to tackle from that angle. Mm. If the opponent is suddenly allowed to tackle from that angle as they were in the 70s and could potentially hurt the player, the player doesn't run past them to move forward. They turn back and pass backwards so, so they don't get hurt. And that changes the game. And I think that's the problem. Yeah, it, it can impact the quality of, of football. I mean, I can think of a couple of uh, challenges at the weekend when Bakayo Saka receiving the ball was taken out twice from behind. I mean, you're not supposed to do make that kind of a tackle, but, but players know that really they're not going to get absolutely creamed from behind. And Arsenal's goal came from Saka receiving a pass with his back to goal, turning away from a defender uh, and... And, and making that move, but but there are rules in place already. So we look at what happened in the game on uh, Monday night um, with Everton. Uh, two really, one tackle, really bad tackle from behind, wasn't punished with a yellow card. Um, it seems like 
the tackle from behind has been a yellow card for a long time now. And there was a, a tackle on Richarlison. Both the tackles were on Richarlison as well. One where the referee jumped in. And, I, you know, I'm going to frame this in an Arsenal way. And this isn't to defend Granit Xhaka in any way because I have my own issues <laughs> with him and his behaviour. But there is very much a, um, you know, it's a, it's a trope or a meme or whatever you want to call it. But, like, if that were Granit Xhaka he's responsible for some of that himself. But it's true that, you know, if certain players make a challenge, they are more likely to be punished than other players. Um, so the rules that 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 um, prevent this kind of, if you want to put it in inverted commas, slightly violent conduct or, or dangerous play already exist. It seems strange to me that that is where referees are going with this edict. If you want to let it flow... I think someone else made this point. It wasn't me, um, and it wasn't you. So, you know the you know the the free kick where a player is sort of shielding the ball, sticks his arse out, and falls over and wins yeah. a free kick. Falls on the ball and handles it and wins a free kick. It's a you the know Harry Kane. Let's the, just call it what you're thinking. Well, no, it's the, the Harry Kane. The Harry Kane is the backing into a guy while he's in the air, and that's yeah. a bit more dangerous. But this one, where it's a really soft free kick, it's not really a foul, but the player, uh, I, I think it's just become accepted within the game that if you back or barge into a player while he puts the brakes on, that player is going to get the free kick. That seems like something that they could let flow a bit more, whereas a sliding tackle, which takes a player off his feet, is really something that still should be punished, whether there's a, a, a new rule or a new ethos from on high at, at referee headquarters in place. I think that that's absolutely right. And it's funny that there are certain types of foul that are that are bought and no one seems to, I, I think, say no one, I think fans generally kind of get it. They get that these things are being done fairly cynically. But referees, and my instinct is to say that because they don't contravene specific laws, the referees aren't uh, kind of regarding them as, as fair game. Mm. But that would, yeah, the, and the, I was at the, I was at Anfield last night and for Liverpool Milan, and there were two or three, as there are in every game, where a Liverpool player stopped because they knew that, you know, and, and Frank, Kessier or whoever was going to run into them and they'd get a free kick for it. And you, you're watching it and you think, well, that, that isn't a free kick. Just, he's stopped and the other guy was still running. How's the other guy meant to know that he's going to stop? Mm. But it's given every time. And I think those are the little kind of, the little the little free kicks, the little fouls that to a lot of people don't feel like fouls. They feel like unnecessary inter interruptions to the game. I think the sliding tackle thing is really interesting because th there is this tension, this sounds really pretentious, but there is this tension within English football that has endured even even the kind of through the like glossy era of the Premier League, that we do fetishise the idea that you mm. know the the Premier League is blood and thunder and it's you know tackles flying in and every, everyone's got to be incredibly manly and masculine and all this stuff and and we, we we're very reluctant I think to to engage with the idea that maybe football is better if that side of it is not discouraged but if sliding tackles have to be perfect and that means that you will only make a sliding tackle. If you if you're convinced you're getting the ball, the one exception being, and I do wonder if this is a bit of a grey area, I'm going to, to describe the best way to describe it is that it's the sort of back heel hook sliding tackle. So you, mm. you slide along alongside them, and the, the players the just Viera. knock the ball. Yeah, they kind of knock it with the back of their the back their their heel, yeah. not the back of their heel. The, your heel is by definition a back, <laughs> but with with their heel just to knock it away. And quite the best ones can knock it with their heel and then stand up and take possession away. That tackle's become really popular in recent years and when done well is brilliant, but it's also quite dangerous 
Because if you do it wrong, there's a lot of body parts kind of entangling and you, you could potentially do some, do some damage. It's not malicious, but you, it's interesting that that is the kind of exception, that sliding tackles generally seem to be being taken out of the game, but that one has very much become part of the modern midfielder in particular skill set. I think we need to have a conversation maybe a little bit more openly about what we want English football to look like. And this is the point of a lot of the conversation that happened after Harvey Elliott, that if you want a more physical game, that's fine. But you have to accept that the consequences of that are potentially more injuries, certainly a more kind of permissive culture in which tackles can can carry more risk, but also a, a less expressive style because there's a lot of... All of this stuff's interconnected. You know, you can't have... Pep Guardiola's pressing game if you don't change the handball rule in 1990. Those two things cannot... You, you can't press mm. if if goalkeepers... Not the handball rule, but the back pass rule. Yeah. If goalkeepers can pick the ball up, you can't press because you just pass it back to the goalkeeper and they, they pick it up and start again. All this stuff's connected. So if you change the culture around tackling to let it flow more, then you will eventually, somewhere down the line, have a, a tactical or a stylistic change that will probably be, be more defensive and more cautious because players don't want to get hurt. It's a strange thing as well, isn't it, to consider, you know, uh, again, in inverted commas, English football, when English footballers and English football managers are very much in the minority in the game, uh, in the Premier League in particular. You know, it is mm. absolutely filled with players from all over Europe. And, you know, I, I hope that remains the case, whether it has uh, the balance tilts the other way because of things that have happened in recent years, we, we don't quite know yet. But it is primarily... Uh, foreign managers, um, maybe there's a little more these days. I mean, are there cultural things that that within uh, English football, as you say, there is this lionization of the physical aspect of the game? And and I love when a game is physical. I love when it's tough but fair. And I think we have to acknowledge as well that that certain things that look bad aren't are very much, um, in fairness, aren't premeditated for the most part. It, a split second can be the difference between an absolutely brilliant tackle and a terrible injury. So mm. that's part and parcel of the game, as you say. But it is about what sort of a culture you allow to to be created. Um, and a lot of the players that come to England and play in England won't be um, familiar with that side of things. Yeah, I think that was. I think the, the, the first thing there is absolutely right that that ba- things that look bad or things that are decreed as being kind of malicious and terrible, are often like a quarter, half a second different from, from, from a great tackle. And I think mm. the strike thing is, 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 a, is quite a good example. There was clearly no malice. It, he didn't set out to... It was, maybe a bit, it was maybe a little bit desperate. I don't think it was a particularly wise tackle to make, but he wasn't doing it to hurt Harvey Ali. I doubt he was even doing it to bring him down. I don't think it was a tactical foul. I think he thought he could get the ball. And the consequences for Harvey Ali are dreadful. It's one of those weird things that it feels like... Um, we, we're now spending more time talking about whether Pascal Strike's three-game ban is fair than a player dislocating their ankle. Like it doesn't, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter whether Pascal Strike's got a three-game ban. That's not that's not actually especially important. And I say that as someone who's very much a Leeds well-wisher. But in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. It, mm. You know, someone's been badly hurt. The problem is is not whether Leeds have been mistreated. It's the issue is the bigger issue is that Harvey Elliott is injured. That is that's more important than who's got a ban, and it feels a bit odd that the conversation is now about that rather than anything else. But anyway, the, the, the we, we I think we we do put too much emphasis on whether people mean to do things or not. I think generally they don't. Some footballers occasionally will set out to enact their revenge on each other, 
and and that's negative, but probably human. Um, but for the most part, it is. You're talking about split split second things, tiny tiny misjudgments from elite athletes, and they get things wrong. And sometimes they have bad consequences. And it's really sad when they do. But it's it, it's part of the game. I think what the culture around it has to has to do is work out what it wants that game to look like and structure its its laws and its kind of concessions and its um, expect, expectations according to what game it wants to have in the end. And the, the danger is that if you say, we have to let it flow because we don't like a lot of interruptions, which means we don't have to ignore minor fouls, you then get that kind of mission creep where, where what constitutes a minor foul is very much open to someone's interpretation. It depends on the context, depends on the referee. As you say, it might depend on the player. I think referees will always tell you the exact opposite. There's no question that referees, to me anyway, just on a common sense point of view, that referees do seem to police certain players in different ways than than others. (laughs) That's obvious. Yeah, yeah, they give the benefit of the doubt to certain players. You hear it all the time, but he's not that sort of player. It doesn't really matter what sort of player anybody is. If they've misjudged the tackle, they've misjudged the tackle. but equally, the, the the bigger issue, the the bigger sort of consequential issue, is that you end up having certain types of tackles that are totally forbidden, except in kind of certain circumstances where they're kind of allowed if they get away with it. And so, you're relying on the referees. This is the most obvious point in the world. But we we tell referees constantly that we want consistency and common sense. Those two things can't exist in easily together because each person's common sense is different, each circumstance is different, each context is different. So what looks like common sense isn't always the same thing. Mm. So it's by definition not consistent. It feels like last year it maybe it was maybe felt that everyone was too consistent, that it was very much the letter of the law, not the spirit of it. This year they've gone back to the spirit, but that's a fairly major change that you you maybe should be thinking about a little bit more clearly because it certainly won't make it it won't make anything easier to understand or less opaque for fans from the outside because they're looking at it thinking well that was a foul last week for that guy but it's not a foul this week for that guy and to my untrained eye there is no difference between those tackles and that is is not a particularly happy place to be I think yeah I think the the point about what kind of football you want, what kind of product the Premier League wants is a really interesting one because, you know, it felt to me, and I know I'm coming at this from a very specific angle uh, with my red and white tinted glasses on, but the, the, the way that certain teams decided to deal with the the technical level of Arsenal uh, when they were at their sort of tippy-tappy best under Arsene Wenger, maybe just at that period where, where the sort of the physicality of Wenger's sides dropped off a little bit so you didn't have the Vieira you didn't have the Bergkamp you didn't have the Gilberto Silva but you had the the Fabregas you had the Ramsey you had the Kleb Rosicki that kind of play and there were certain teams who decided well look on a technical level we can't live with this team so we're going to be more physical than we might be with other teams the old Arsenal don't like it up and trope was was evident for a while there were three really really bad injuries you know, among the worst injuries that that English football, I think, has ever seen. But it felt like, if not a consequence of that, there was a move away from from that side of things, or at least an attempt to make English football more technical and more exciting and to focus on the positive aspects of that, which is why we had those rules in place. And this sort of feels a little bit like 
as Klopp said, going back a period, going back a generation or two, or, you know, where it is more permissive, where things like this may well happen. And I say this uh, as Arsenal get ready to face Burnley on Saturday. So, you know, it, it is um, in some ways a little bit worrying. Yeah, well, I thought the point when, when you made that point on Twitter, it, did, it really ran about. And I think you're absolutely right that that's, that was never distrust from memory in terms of those injuries to people like Eduardo as to whether the kind of expectation that, that the, it was acceptable for teams to try and make up that technical gap by imposing themselves on Arsenal physically, was whether that was a good thing. That was not, never a conversation that was had in relation to those injuries, Ramsey and, and Eduardo and all the others. Whereas looking back now, there's clearly a link that, that, that there, was a, a, there was an idea at the time. And it, I, I'd be interested to speak to referees. I haven't done it, but I'd be interested to speak to referees who were refereeing then, whether mm. maybe they accepted that, you know, if you were Stoke or whoever, you, you would have a, a more physical approach for Arsenal and that they would kind of take that into consideration as they refereed the game. That, that, was, that was kind of how Stoke wanted to play the game. And that was, as long as it was within the rules, then it was fine. But you, you, looking back, it's obvious that there, that there was a connection between the fact that Arsenal players kept getting bad injuries from contact, bad injuries from contact, at a time when everyone was being told, well, the best way to play Arsenal is to kick them. Mm. And I think that is a really powerful example to English football now that we we do have a very technical game, and we have a lot of kind of quite sophisticated ideas, all of which have been imported, and lots of teams that play good football. And lots of teams that play that want to play very expressive football. Not everybody, but you know, most teams want to play quite expressive football. And obviously, there is a physical side to it. But to to protect the creative, expressive part of the product, which is what makes the Premier League so compelling and what makes it competitive in Europe, you have to accept that it cannot be the physical game that loads of blokes in their forties who are sitting in the stands are screaming to have back. There is a reason that English teams didn't do well in Europe in the nineties. And it was because they were still playing this kind of outdated physical style without a lot, a lot of those kind of expressive ideas that we have now. If you want to play cutting-edge football, you take ideas and systems and, and playing styles that come from cutting-edge cultures, and those cultures don't have the same attitude to tackling that we do, where we see it as a virtue and that you've got, the, the whole thing is some sort of test of manliness, and it, it isn't. That's not what football is. It's not really a test of manliness, to be honest. It's a test of skill and acumen and street smarts and all that stuff but it, you don't need it's not a kind of it's not a macho thing that shouldn't be the defining virtue of football and I think it's a shame that England still hasn't been able to shape this idea that it wants everything to be seen through this prism of kind of Victorian masculinity and that we have to be able you know if you, if you can't cope with the physical side then then maybe that's then that's some sort of flaw well maybe the bigger flaw is that the team that's got to rely on the physical side isn't very good at football that shouldn't be seen as a good thing. You shouldn't be celebrating that. I find it really odd that we still do. Mm. Is there a case to be made that, you know, this is a, this is an issue that won't properly be dealt with, um, at least from an official level, as long as, you know, someone like, I'm not asking you to go in two-footed, pardon the pun, on, on Mike Riley here, but, you know, this is a guy who was a referee in that period where football, English football was more physical, English football teams were more physical, English football players indeed. And it's not to say that, that this is a, a thing that's uh, unique to English players. There have been some uh, fairly brutal uh, players from all over the world and from all over Europe. So it's it's not just that, but it's just the prevailing culture. Mike Riley was, was part of that when he was a referee. You know, we have this PGMOL, who are the, the, the Premier League um, match officials, 
they have a, a fairly strong influence on the game and how we as fans experience the game. And I think we, we uh, might have some concerns about this, which could be premature um, because it's only been four games of this season. And maybe, you know, when we get to the end of the season, we'll think, okay, well, maybe we were overreacting a bit early. But the the issues with VAR, for example, um, where the implementation of it appears in the Premier League to have been much more divisive. Uh, we saw during the European Championships the way VAR was used and everybody, even the most VAR sceptical people, whether you want to keep it or not, would say, well, at least it was better when it was done that way. Um, you know, is there a case to be made that some sort of reform needs to happen with that group uh, of officials before real progress can be made? My, my issue with PGM, PGMOL has always been that it strikes me that they regard football, a successful football match, as being a game in which the laws are applied correctly, as opposed to seeing the laws as being a sort of framework by which good fo- like football might happen. Mm. They, seem, they, they see the purpose of football as being, it's their chance for 90 minutes just to apply these rules. And I think that, that sounds slightly facetious, but I don't think it is. I think that there, there is an element to which the rules have to serve the game rather than the game serving the rules. And there have been times in, in the recent past where it feels like that's, that balance hasn't been right. The, the fact that they keep changing their... We shouldn't, to be perfectly honest, we should not have a storyline every summer about how PGMO, PGMOL have decided they're going to referee this season. That makes no sense. Yeah. That is not the point of referees. The, 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 the way they referee should not change. There should be a sort of expectation of... This is what this is what is illegal. This is what's not allowed. This is what's a little bit borderline. And we have to look. We have to be honest. There's always going to be stuff that's a little bit borderline. That's the nature of the game. This is a bit borderline. This is fine. This isn't. That shouldn't. It, it feels like we shouldn't be having journalists summoned to Stockley Park or equivalent <laughs> to be told the rules for this year are these. That it makes no sense. And I, I do wonder whether there needs to be some sort of review of what the best way to run the refereeing body for for English football, men's and women's, should be. Because it feels like it's a difficult job. I have a lot of sympathy with referees. I I do do my level best never to mention them at all. In in, When I'm writing about games, I try not to mention them because I couldn't do it. They get most of the stuff right. They're all trying their hardest. And and that, that I think that is generally the healthiest attitude towards referees. But I do question whether... There need there needs to be a little bit of thinking about just just do we need referees to be changing their minds on kind of how they're interpreting things so often when their basic job is to is to do things the same most of the time. Yeah, I mean, there, there is fluidity obviously in the rules, and rules um, become or can become. You know, something yeah. could be a bit more enforced. Yeah. So we, we we hear all the time about, you know, how the players get a visit from a referee. The referee tells them, this season, if you do that, that's going to be a red card or that's going to be a yellow card. And they have these meetings and they, they go across all, all the clubs. I mean, some of that is due to changes in the rules or changes within the game itself, I guess. But are you aware? I don't know if you're aware or not. Does, does this happen in other countries is this something that's unique to english football or is this something that you know referees in spain and italy and france and germany etc etc you know have the same kind of issues to deal with or or are they a bit more in the background i wouldn't i wouldn't claim absolute expertise my 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 instinct is my understanding is that referees will go and visit clubs 
in all the major leagues, that's fairly standard, I think. And mm. they sort of remind them about certain things or if there's new directives, if there's new kind of... Maybe if they've noticed something from the previous season that was creeping in, they'll, they'll say, kind of, right, we're going to clamp down on this. Refereeing outside the Premier League by no means perfect. But I think if you look at, say, how the handball rule has been implemented, the change, all those weird changes to the handball rule mm. where it got to the point like 18 months ago when no one knew what handball was anymore... Um, that's been that's that's been quite a British thing. That's I don't know if I can speak for Scotland, but certainly in, in terms of England, there's been lots of doubt over handball. Feels like that's not really happened in Europe. That it's always been roughly the same. And I think you, you do get changes. So the Dutch have, the Dutch pioneered this use of the thicker lines for VAR to, to get rid of the toenail offsides, and that was unique to them. And, and it looks like it's catching on around around Europe. But th- there are differences, and there, there will be controversies. Probably the same frequency, just ultimately people quite like seem to like that sort of my referees. But I do get the sense that we we flip flop a lot more on mm. this. This has been an issue this season. So next season we're going to do the complete opposite, rather than just saying, "Well, actually, do you know, it was an issue this season, but it probably won't be next season because everyone's used to it." There is this; it changes with the wind a little bit, and I, I wonder whether that's that's a political thing within PGMOL, whether it's to do with the relation, the power dynamic between PGMOL and the FA and the Premier League, whether it's to do with a kind of Megalomania within PGMOL. I, I don't quite know where it comes from, mm. but it feels like that need. There needs to be a point at which we stop having to talk about the fact that the, the, the directives are changing and the way the rules are being implemented are changing. I agree with you completely. Sometimes things need to be updated and changed and tweaked. That's fine, but it does seem to happen every summer now that there is a a big meeting and they decide actually we're going to do things completely differently. And the other thing, and I, I can't I can't remember the exact. Game. It was a Man City goal that Rodri scored, possibly against Chelsea in like January last year, where he was very clearly offside. And it was given, possibly by VAR. And I remember tweeting, that go- there will be a little directive come out in about three weeks' time saying that that, sh- that goal shouldn't have been given because he was actually offside. And it didn't even take three weeks. It took it, however many yeah. days... To explain, they initially said they initially said the goal was fine because of this, this, and this, and then th- a week later they changed their minds. And the re- the only reason that so you end up with a sort of week where the rules have changed, and it's because the referees refuse to admit admit that one of their numbers just got it wrong, and it's fine for him to have got it wrong, but just come out and say he's got it wrong. And I think that's the danger that they're so susceptible to criticism, and there's so much kind of frenzy over them that they they have kind of joined rank, closed ranks effectively yeah. and that is starting to exert an influence. Yeah, and I think, you know, just m- before we move on from this, that you know, the fact that the PGMOL is not really accountable to anyone so they can do things like that without real consequences uh, for any of the people involved, whether it's the referees, like, you know, a referee gets something egregiously wrong and all of a sudden he's demoted to the championship for a weekend, which seems a bit unfair on the teams in the championship, you know, to, to <laughs> say, well, look, this referee is so terrible... We're going to give him to you guys. So, uh, yeah. Well, look, we'll see what happens over over the course of this season. Um, I wanted to ask you about the World Cup and the growing uh, idea that this is going to happen every couple of years, every two years now. Um, Your New York Times uh, colleague, Tariq Panja, has uh, tweeted this afternoon, FIFA-funded survey finds fans, in inverted commas, support FIFA's proposal for a biennial World Cup. Uh, That comes after UEFA-backed fans group said its members were against a biennial World Cup. Um, Is this uh, an inevitability now? 
I don't know whether it's an inevitability. FIFA seems to have made their mind up that it's going to happen, but there is something extremely, extremely worrying about the fact that... Oh, sorry, not worrying, but so, there's something slightly strange about the fact that you could end up with the, the fate of kind of European football, South American football, the, the engines of the game, club football as much as anything, influenced really heavily by a lot of people who've got nothing to do with it, really. So lots and lots of football associations. It shouldn't be voted on by the 211 members of FIFA. Now, the vast majority of them haven't, don't have a stake in European football and mm. what happens to the Champions League. They don't have a stake in what happens to the Premier League or the Bundesliga or the Copper America or the Euros. And yet they are, they are making these decisions. Nobody else, not, none, of, none of football's other stakeholders seem to have any influence whatsoever. So they're not talking to the leagues. They, they've said they're going to consult the confederations, but that hasn't happened. But the, fan, the fan group concept is, is a strange one because, as Tarek said, they're all, be, they're all backed by different people. And so they're obviously saying what's in their interests. There's no, no, talk of, talk, no mention of talking, talking to the clubs, no mention of talking to the players. It just seems to be just that kind of FIFA are going to force this through. Whether that will happen or not, I don't know, because obviously UEFA and Conmebol particularly have a lot of power. And if they say we're not backing it, then FIFA have got a problem. Mm. If the clubs and the leagues come out in mutiny against it, then FIFA have a problem. Um, but they do seem fairly committed to it, which is, in one sense, predictable, in one sense, quite odd, because you'd have thought that everything works quite nicely for FIFA. By all accounts, the, the, the financial benefit of this is substantial, but it's not life-changing. Um, in which case you kind of have to look at it and assume that it's to do with Gianni Infantino wanting re-election and the way he wants to get re-election is to uh, promise his member, his member states, his mem- member federations as much money as possible and that's why they're doing it. The fact that everybody else in football seems fairly united against it, they don't seem to care about. Are you surprised that Arsene Wenger is one of the, the men who is, is pushing this? Because to me it feels very much at odds with what he stood for as a club manager. And I've read, you know, what he said of late, and and some of it makes sense. Like, you're going to have two years, but instead of four or five international breaks, you might have two international breaks. There's not going to be any more matches. He's talking about periods of compulsory rest uh, after the final stages. Uh, You know, he says it's not about money. It's about, um, you know, improving the level of play at all competitions. I mean... It's it's a real shift in perspective from Arsene Wenger. Maybe his eyes have been opened by being inside the the hallowed gates of FIFA or whatever it is. But I have to say I'm surprised because as a club manager, you know, a few years ago, I remember he was very much opposed to the idea of um, increasing the number of teams in the World Cup. He was, uh, I think, he was against the idea of increasing the number of teams in the European Championships. So this is a a, a bit of a, a a shift from him. Yeah, I think that's right. It, it does feel slightly out of out of kilter with what he used to think in his previous life. His logic for it is that it kind of condenses the international breaks, it make, it rationalises the calendar a bit, and it means that everyone gets more time to work with their players uninterrupted. So I guess what he would say to that is that he is still thinking with that hat on, he's just also taking into consideration the fact that his counterparts as, as inter- in the international game want the same thing. And I think the shame of it is there's, there's quite a lot of good ideas from what he's... His proposal contains some quite good ideas. So I think only having one big international break in the season it makes sense. I personally wouldn't do it in October when the Leeds have just got started. I'd do it over Christmas or in January in the middle of the season, give everybody else a break, mm. internationals have to play. I think that makes perfect sense. Effectively divide the season into two. Um, it might, that might even have the impact of 
kind of levelling the playing field a little bit because the big teams would suffer a bit more than the smaller teams, which means that maybe the smaller teams would be fitter and better rested and Leeds might be more mm. interesting. Um, so yeah. the, the, there's some good ideas in there. There's some ideas that make sense in one light but not in others. So running running the Euros, the Copa America, the, the AFCON and the Asian, the Asian International Tournament uh, makes sense all at the same time. The problem being that if you run AFCON at the same time as the, Euro, as the Euros, no one's watching the AFCON. So it kind of limits that competition's chance to grow. Also, it's not great playing a summer tournament in quite a lot of Africa. It's quite hot. Yeah. So that's problematic. But I can see why he wants to do that. The shame, the shame is that it's all dominated. It's all at the cost of this one big idea, which is the, not just a biennial World Cup, but a biennial set of, of, of continental tournaments. And you can make the case, as Wenger does, that the, the World Cup has enough prestige to be held every two years without losing anything. Not sure that's true of the Copa America or the African Cup of Nations, or even the Euros. Yeah. I think if you had the Euros every two years, people would go off the Euros, and that is a big issue. Just finally, Rory, I mean, do you think the the, the, the sort of plans that FIFA are putting in place, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, do, do you think there's a correlation between the Super League and this World Cup every two years, whereby the vested interests in club football are trying or were trying to to get themselves ahead of what was uh, going to happen at, at international level because that would have a significant impact on the way that they operate. I mean, I don't think either idea is a good idea, but you could see perhaps some logic in... in um, look, I think the, the Super League thing was avaricious and all the rest of it, but, but maybe it was informed by this. That's interesting. Not, that hadn't occurred to me. I think that's an interesting point. You wonder, just certainly the Super League plotters, as we have to call them, were in contact with FIFA, so they may have known that FIFA would, 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 would go into propose something along these lines. I think what it shows most of all is that everyone is jockeying for position and for power, that the clubs want to, re- to realign the game along their lines, that FIFA want to realign it along their lines, that UEFA want to realign it along their lines. The Leeds will have an opinion. The other confederations will have an opinion. It's all to do with this 2024 date when the international calendar sort of resets, this year zero. And that, that is why everyone is sort of putting these ideas out now and it, to try and get their position, to try and state a claim, to try and, try and sort of claim land ahead of the point, whenever, whenever it might be in the next year or two, when they need to make these decisions. So I think they are related, although whether it was the club trying to get ahead of FIFA, I'm not entirely sure. All right, look, we better leave it there. Um, Rory, thanks very much indeed for your time. Great to talk to you. Always a pleasure. Thanks, mate. Thank you very much indeed to Rory. You can find him on Twitter. He is at Rory Smith, at Rory Smith. And as I said at the top, he is co-host of the excellent Set Pieces podcast, which you could add to your football podcast roster. If you're looking for something new, I do recommend it, but make sure you listen to it at the correct speed. Also, apologies if there was a bit of weirdness on the audio in about the last 10, 15 minutes there. Rory's laptop fans went a bit crazy. So there was this like noise in the background. I did my best to remove it, but it did have some impact on on what went out. But in comparison to the uh, original recording with the in the background, that was better. So it was kind of like the least worst option, a bit like choosing Marouane Shamak to play up front when your only other option is Cabadiawara. Now, for a bit of Arsenal chat after a quiet week, it is Andrew Allen. Hello, Andrew. Hey there. How's it going? It's going all right. Uh, It's been a quiet midweek, 
and this is usually the week when European competition starts. For the last 25 years, Arsenal have been in European competition. Have you noticed it? Has it felt a bit weird, given that everything is starting for everyone else? Even if it was like Europa League, we'd be uh, playing tonight, Thursday, as we're speaking. That's not the case. And yeah, we're in for some sort of quiet weeks, aren't we? I'm going to be honest, I woke up on Wednesday morning and I had no idea that the Champions League had started, Um, (laughs) which was a bit of a shock because then I was like, oh my God, you know, Bayern Munich have beaten Barcelona 3-0 with the new camp. That's a big result. Oh, you know, look at Manchester United. Um, Yeah, it's been a bit weird. It's it's funny how I've allowed my, you know, it's just to completely wash over me as a consequence of Arsenal just not being, you know, in any continental action whatsoever. But um, some interesting results there. Yeah. you know, could have been us losing 6-3 to Man City at the Etihad or something, you know. So it's nice to see it happening to someone else. <laughs> I guess so, I guess so. Mikel Arteta spoke at his press conference today. He said he was really hurt by turning on the TV and seeing all these other teams and, uh, you know, being in Europe and European competition starting and Arsenal not being part of it. Uh, and I think he sort of half-corrected himself at one point. He says, I don't want to be sitting here watching Arsenal not be in Europe next year. Or I think he then sort of said sitting there, uh, you know, because I think if Arsenal aren't in European competition next season, it's going to be, um, yeah, I think he's going to be doing well to be sitting in the in the manager's chair for, for sure. Uh, but I mean, it is a motivating factor. It's something he said himself, this is part of the motivation is to get Arsenal back into into Europe I think if the players can't be motivated by the lack of game time then there's going to be no kick up the arse that's going to work for them I mean it's felt like a long week I think for for all the fans and we're going to have to get used to this now for Mm. the rest of the season I know that we spoke very positively about there not being any of the the travelling and all the rest of it when we were weighing up whether or not we wanted to you know, squeeze into the conference league when that was an option at the tail end of last season. And I think we all kind of went, well, it'd be nice to just have spent more time on the training ground. But I think we're all starting to realise it can get a bit boring. And, um, you know, that's not just for fans, but for the players. And, and, you know, I think you wrote kind of well in Mm. this morning's blog about how there are going to be players there who are just going to be scratching their heads and wondering when they're actually going to get some game time. And they're not even sort of fringe players. They're quite big names, really. Um, So, yeah, it's an issue. I'm look we know we have to change everything this season we know that we have to get back into Europe it's quite galling I guess as a supporter brought up on Champions League football and playing at the highest level that realistically we're talking about getting back into a competition that two years ago we were kind of poo-pooing as a sort of this is a pain in the ass, you know the Europa League nobody Mm. wants to be in it so how the mighty have fallen yeah, I mean, there is an element of that. You know, the 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 dizzy heights of fourth now would seem quite something, wouldn't they? Um, I mean, the, 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 the competition in England is exceptional at the moment. Mm. I think, you know, I, I, I don't remember there being four teams of the quality of Manchester City, Chelsea, Manchester United and Liverpool competing at the same time for the, for the title. Mm. I think... That is something that we've been worried about for a while. And, you know, instead of the gap opening up on one or two teams, I think it's opened up on four and we've, you know, we we're well aware of that. But it it also makes it much harder to kind of for there to be a kind of lucky season where you take advantage of one side, you know, maybe sacking a manager and a, and a, and a changeover of the guard and stuff. Um, 
you know, it, it, a lot of the stars are going to have to align for us to 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 to, to climb higher than fifth, for sure. I mm. mean, I realistically, fifth is even then is a, is a bit of a dream at the moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's great for the for the Premier League, and I think it's going to make for some really interesting. Uh, domestic fixtures this season and I do hope that some of those teams will obviously take points off each other and that nobody ends up going unbeaten so we can at least cherish Invincibles Day and all the rest of it but um, yeah it's a, it's, it's a tough one at the moment for Yeah, us. I mean you mentioned the lucky season you're put in mind of the, the, the season Leicester won the title and I think that was yeah. like a, I wouldn't say a million to one shot but but like so rare it's impossible to think that something like that would happen again that that would allow a team like Leicester and like to be fair for Arsenal to finish second that season as well uh, as painful as it was you know I don't think it was the best iteration of Arsenal that we've ever seen we've certainly had better teams finish lower down in the table than than that so I don't know that that is ever going to really happen again I suppose the thing that people would say is you're looking to try and build something that's consistent, that isn't just there to take advantage of a, a one-off situation. A team that can uh, perform on a consistent basis, can challenge and be competitive on a consistent basis. And that's what, what Arteta or whoever else comes after him is going to have to put together. Yeah. I mean, I, when Wenger left and Emery took over, you know, what I was really looking for in terms of progress was us not shitting the bed every time we went to one of the big four teams away from home. And, you know, as a very baseline kind of level of whether or not we've improved or not, I, we obviously haven't. You know, we keep going away to big sides and, and crapping the bed. I know it was slightly better last year, but without any fans, it felt like it was a sort of, you know, asterisk season as it were so yeah we've got to we've we've got to show improvement I mean look the we, we've we've all kind of understood what the project is now and it's going to be a focus on the younger players and I, I think we're all realistic about what that that means for the future of the club mm. um but you know it's very it's very difficult when any set of 11 players and arsenal colors go onto the pitch and 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 get you know trashed basically in public so it's it's really hard trying to navigate the waters at the moment thinking long term uh mostly because you, you know now with these big gaps every week the hope builds even more doesn't it i mean you you're kind of like it's the one thing in my calendar that i'm kind of constantly looking at when's the next arsenal game wonder what's going to happen in that one and you know you kind of want those dopamine hits of an arsenal win occasionally <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they're few and far between with the fixtures like this yeah i mean going back to what you were talking about about not being in europe and you know the rationalisation that, OK, we're not going to be in Europe. We don't want to be in the Euro Europa, Europa Conference League, whatever the fuck it's called. So we, we don't want to be in that. So no Europe. And, and if you're looking for silver linings, if you're looking for positives, if you're looking for things that you're desperately trying to hang on to, um, it is the fact that you have midweeks free so you don't have the travel you don't have the fatigue you don't have the accumulated fatigue over the course of the season you don't have um, more risk of players getting injured you do have time on the training ground you do have time for organization and preparation and that is the only benefit to Arsenal of not being in Europe now that has to be played out doesn't it across the course of this season and when you think about games like the ones that we've got coming up if and I don't know if this is the way people think in general but but maybe let's say let's say you assume that Arsenal are a better team 
man for man, pound for pound than Burnley. Maybe there's an element of equalisation when Arsenal play Burnley, having gone to, you know, the far reaches of Europe to play a Europa League game on a Thursday, and then they've got to go on Sunday to turf, uh, turf more. And it is a bit of an equaliser in a way, because there are issues that you have to deal with. Players are a bit tired, and it might take them a bit longer to get going. We all know that European hangover thing is is real, because we've seen it lots of times. But this is exactly the kind of fixture where if there is an advantage to not being in Europe, we need to see it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not like the way Burnley are going to play is, is, going, to, is going to be a secret. We know that there's going to be a lot of time with the ball in the air, that there's going to be a physical occasion. Um I, I mean, for Arteta working with so many new players at the moment, he may well kind of lean, look back and go, mm. oh my God, like I've got a lot to, to teach some of these guys who are only just coming in. It's like starting afresh with some of them, you know, uh, Tommy Asso, uh, uh, you know, maybe Ramsdale's only kind of, you know, just bedding in, I guess, with some of the others. They've, they've been around the squad, but it's, um, yeah, I, I want to start seeing the, the benefits. I mean, obviously the other advantage, you know, the advantage the advantageous position that we are in at the moment is that there are other clubs who are obviously having to do all of those things that we're not doing and Mm. you're kind of keeping an eye out for what those results are going to be how are they going to react especially the clubs that don't do a lot of European football so West Ham for example you know they had an incredible season last year but I fully expect their squad to be absolutely stretched to the limit by being in the Europa League because I think actually they're a reasonable team and they could you know easily make it out of the group stages um, I think it's going to be less of an issue for someone like a Spurs where the competition is so minimal at this early stages that they'll be able to field a bunch of kids and, and get away with it. Um, and then with the Champions League guys, I mean, who knows? I mean, it's, um, you know, that level of competition, they just seem to kind of maintain it somehow. I mean, you know, watching City week in, week out right now, it's just scary. So, um, yeah, I want to see I want to see some, some real steady improvement over the course of the season. And for us to just, yeah, a tight ship. I just I just don't want us to I don't want to see games where we look like we've been completely taken by surprise in the first 15 minutes. Because yeah. it's just, yeah. you know, we've had enough of those, you know, games where you're two nil down after 25 minutes and you kind of know that that's it because we're going to struggle to, 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 to get back into a game. I'm pretty sure that we haven't actually won a game from behind at half time or something under Arteta, yeah. which is not a great kind of stat. And, you know, it's those types of situations we really, we, we should be making fast starts or at least mentally you should be preparing the side to, to make a fast start, you know, um, traveling, the COVID stuff. I mean, it's all kind of sort of in the past a bit now for the players. So they should be back to old style uh, routines and, and they've got, they've got no excuse. They've got no excuses is basically where I'm leading. Well, yeah, that's it. I mean, there's, there, there's no reason for an Arsenal team not to play with a hundred percent energy because, you know, they've been training all week. They haven't had a match and whatever you think of how hard a team trains, you know, a match is a different thing. It's much more competitive. There's much more uh, involved in that. So, you know, this is one of those games I have to say where, you know, I, I think it's really difficult to analyze Arsenal at the moment because those opening three games it's not like I don't want to say they've sort of uh, existed in a kind of bubble but they they haven't felt normal because of well all the factors transfer window not closing injuries COVID all of those things but now um, yeah I mean it's not like the season starts here but but we really have to to get ourselves going nevertheless it's it's difficult 
to analyze this team because everything feels, and I know it's not the reality of it, it's probably not the reality of it inside, but it does feel a bit like one game at a time for us at the moment. Like every, every game is a cup final kind of thing that there's so much to prove. Like even when you win a game, it's immediately, well, that's a game you should win. You know, you're not convincing anybody. I don't know how many games we have to win in a row before people will say, okay, maybe there's something going on here. But I know it's definitely more than one and it's going to have to be more than two. So we need to see uh, see that this weekend. Yeah, I mean, not losing is actually, is for me right now, is imperative. You know, we've, we've suffered three defeats. Realistically, to, to, to get into Europe, you can afford to maybe have eight defeats in a season. And that's a lot. And, you, you know, you look at the fixtures that we still have to play and there's so many teams. So not losing at the moment, trying to maintain some kind of narrative around going on an unbeaten run would be fantastic. And, you know, if we can, you know, I, I want us to, to beat Burnley, obviously, but I'd, I'd, I'd almost accept not losing, beating Spurs the week after, um, you know, generating the momentum that way. Um, but yeah, it's it's absolutely imperative at this point that we just keep it tight, keep a really tight ship. You know, I think the clean sheet the other day was really important. Mm. I had there were so many echoes of the post Old Trafford eight two one nil win against Swansea about the the Norwich game that I just kept thinking back to that. You know, mm. what was it? Ten, basically, ten years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. I just kept thinking back to you know you. you it's everybody thinks you're going to turn up and be able to beat a weaker side but actually the training wheels are back on you're taking it slow you're, you're building those relationships and the confidence up again it's all that kind of Arsene Wenger confidence when you're uh, you, you can go up by a lift and come down by the stairs or is it the other way around no you go up the stairs <laughs> yeah you go up it's the stairs and come down going, the lift tougher going yeah. up in the stairs yeah yeah um, so yeah, keep it keep it. T- I mean, I think you know Arteta's no mug. He absolutely knows. He knows this now. He absolutely knows this. I think he's probably feeling pretty confident with the team news. Aside from Xhaka being suspended, I think <laughs> he'd Burnley. probably be quite. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's quite exactly. A blessing yeah. in disguise. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's taken himself out of harm's way. Um, you know, holding an El Nenny being missing isn't a massive issue given that um, Gabriel and, and, and Ben White are kind of nominally mm. our first choice partnership. And I think, you know, party, it sounds like the, the vibes are good that they're managing his recovery, but he's, he feels pretty good about things. Obviously, Angel Maitland-Nars has had those minutes in midfield now. So, I mean, squad-wise, option-wise, he's everybody's there. You know, Aubameyang scoring goals. Um, and I, I just think... Yeah, I, 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 there are no excuses. There are no excuses. No excuses. We'll have a bit more in the Burnley game over on Patreon. Um, if you want to check that out, myself and Lewis Ambrose talking about that, patreon.com forward slash arsebox. Just very finally, Andrew, just want to um, pick your brain a little bit. What, what are your thoughts on the, the Jack Wilshire situation? I mean, it's sad that a player of his talent hasn't been able to, to find a club. And if Arsenal can facilitate some training or, or whatever it might be. I don't think I really have an issue with that. But it's a, it's a player who was here for many years, got hurt wearing our colours, and that's had a big impact on his career. So if we can help him along the way, I think that's a, that's a good thing to do. I do wonder why some people are, are maybe toying with the idea, this romantic notion that he'll be so good in training that we might offer him a short-term deal and and everything else. It seems really unlikely to me that he's he's at that level right now, which is sad, obviously, but 
I'm not sure that if there isn't a club in the championship or in the other um, other Premier League clubs willing to take a chance on on Jack, um, that I, I think that probably says as much about his situation than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I I think the football world's quite strange. Is that I I I don't think people do a huge amount of research. They kind of believe things that they hear on the grapevine, and you know, people like a Jack Wilshere get labelled with being, mm. you know you know, being uh, unfit or have injury problems and all the rest of it. And he's done so much to try and tell people that's not the case. Um, look, I'm, I'm, I'm all for him being back and around the young players. You know, I think his experience uh, as an England international, as a top-level footballer is, is good. And, you know, he obviously has a relationship with Arteta, which stems back to the playing days. I thought it was really interesting when... Um, when he he first did the interview with the Athletic, and it was you know it was a very candid interview about how he's feeling about his relationship with the game, that so many of the young Arsenal players all posted about him mm. on their social channels. You know, I, there's a huge respect there from the young guys, and you know I I, I think having him around could be good for morale but yeah like you I I mean I didn't think Flamini was going to get a contract I didn't think Sol Campbell was going to get a contract I didn't think Thierry Henry was going to get a contract (laughs) and those things happened I don't think it really fits into the Arteta project right now Um, I don't see how it would necessarily yeah I don't see it being beneficial to us at this point because I think we have a crowded squad and you know what does an Ainsley Maitland-Niles who's trying to play central midfield think about uh, you know Jack Wilshire coming in and suddenly being given mm. a contract and all the rest of it so I, I don't see it being like that I don't think Jack Wilshire expects anything more than the opportunity to train and be around top level professionals and maybe the opportunity to you know just change his status in the game remind people what he can do and who he is and why he's respected and all the great things he's done in the game he's 29 mm. he has got more games in his legs for sure even if those legs have taken a bit of a battering of the years it, it does seem like he he has some interest in operating as a coach or, or staying in football after he retires as a player so i know maybe there's something there you know when you think about who's in charge Mikel arteta per mertesacker's around the place as well edu's around the place maybe maybe there's some inspiration for him there in terms of yeah, you know what yeah. might come next he did his i think he did his badges with mm. mertesacker i'm I know that was something that Mertesat had talked about when we were talking to him about his book. So um, there's, there are close bonds there. And I think as Arteta highlighted, you know, the staff around the club, those who are still, you know, who've been around for more than five years, you know, they respect Jack as well. They like Jack. They know that Jack buys into what Arsenal means. And maybe we're missing a little bit of that old Arsenal spirit in there as well. All right. Well, look, we'll leave it there for now. Andrew, thanks very much. Cheers. Thank you very much indeed to Andrew. You can find him on Twitter. He is at A. Allen Sport, at A. Allen Sport. And of course, he is host of the Left Field Podcast, another podcast that you should check out while listening to At The Normal Speed. Right. Not a great deal left to talk about. Obviously, we face Burnley uh, on Saturday at Turf Moor. We've talked about that. There is a preview podcast available right now on Patreon. Myself and Lewis Ambrose previewing the Burnley game and lots more besides. Uh, lots of Arsenal chat in there for you. If you want to get on board, patreon.com forward slash arseblog. Whatever happens on Saturday, we will talk about it on the Arsecast Extra on Monday. James is not here. Because he, can you believe this, is going on holiday. 
a concept I just recently learned about and I'm now filled with envy. So we will have a standing co-host on Monday's Arscast Extra. Who will it be? Tune in to find out. Let's keep fingers crossed. We've got a happy weekend ahead of us and a goodly morning with our special super secret Arscast Extra co-host stand-in. I'm building this up way too much, I promise you. Not that I'm not looking forward to talking to Tayo Papula on Monday morning about all things Arsenal. I've given the game away. I'm really terrible at this. Anyway, join myself and Tao on Monday morning for the Arsecast Extra. Have a good one. Thank you for listening, as always, and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. We've got time for one more question. Uh, Steve from the Burnley Gazette. Hello, Sean Dyche. You've heard Jurgen Klopp talk about your team, and after the game against Everton, there was some criticism of the tackles that a couple of your players have made. A lot of focus now on this uh, idea of letting it flow. Do you agree with the uh, referee's decision to, to let it flow? Let it flow! Let it flow! You can't tackle anymore! Let it flow, let it flow, leave the opponent on the floor. I don't care what Klopp's got to say. Referee played on, it was never a yellow card anyway. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.